listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. Lots to talk about in this next hour. We're going to talk about the push to reduce speed limits in the city of Toronto. Have we reached a tipping point where people, even in cars, hardcore drivers like perhaps yourself, might be thinking, well, you know what? I think maybe there's something to this. Are you at that point? We're going to talk about Justin Trudeau in his international tour. Why is it that we want a seat at the U.N. Security Council anyway? Why do we want that? Is that just to serve Justin Trudeau's ego, or is there something actually that we can gain as a nation? David Aiken is on the road with the Prime Minister and will join me later on in the program to talk about that. We're going to talk about the push for a four-day work week. Is that something that appeals to you? I know my son, who's in grade six, always says to me, Dad, I got a great idea. We make it a three-day work week, three days in school, make it a five-day weekend. This is my idea. Like he, and he pitches that to me like, oh, you're right. You got, you're on to something. Well, he's getting, his, he's getting his wish because with all this labor disruption, he's only going to be in school maybe one, maybe no days this week, considering on what's going on. You got a Friday's a PA day. You got tomorrow's a strike day. Wednesday's a strike day. Lots to keep, lots to keep going on today. Lots to think about. Wait, wait a minute. Oh. What Eminem? What are you doing here? Sit down, Mathers. Sit down. Nobody asked for Eminem. What, did you watch the Oscars last night? All of a sudden, he pops up in the middle of the thing like just bang. What is what is Eminem doing there? Pull up your pants, pal. Eighteen years after he wins an Oscar, ah, let's show up do a song. Well, lots to go on, lots to talk about this next hour, and we begin with an absolute tragedy in the Milton area at Rattlesnake Point. I grew up in Burlington. I know this area so well. You know, we go hiking up there, and we know the escarpment. I, I know it very well. I know it can be dangerous, and this news that a father and a four-year-old have passed away, their bodies found last night by uh, Halton police, And then a press conference just a short while ago from the Halton police where they outlined that even though homicide, the homicide squad is investigating, at this point, this case is not considered to be a homicide. Here is Halton Regional Police Spokesperson Constable Ryan Anderson. At this time, the investigation is being conducted by our homicide unit, and that is because the homicide unit would investigate any investigation with a child under five years old. It is not considered a homicide investigation at this time. At this time, keep that in mind, that may change. These things have a habit of developing. Uh, The mother of the young child speaking to Global News this morning, and this is just so heart-wrenching. She spoke about her resilient little girl. Absolutely resilient and smart and spunky. Loved to dress up, loved to get into her princess dress and be fancy. She she had a shirt that said, I'm going to change the world. And I believe that Kira truly thought she could. She was that sort of girl. So now I'm, I'm going to try what I can to do that for her. That is Jennifer Kagan speaking to Global News. Her daughter Kira, or the body of Kira, was found last night at Rattlesnake Point with her father. Catherine McDonald is looking into this story for us on Global News and joins me on the line. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alan. What do we know at this point? I, I know there wasn't a whole lot of information in that press conference. So from what we know from the family, um, so Kira would spend weekends with her father. His name is Robin Allen McLean Brown. And on uh, so he, he would have a weekend with her. And it was last night 
uh, when it was Robin's girlfriend, according to the mother, who called police because um, Robin had taken Kira to Rattlesnake Point hiking around 2 in the afternoon, 2.30, and they were supposed to return around 5 or 5.30. And when that didn't happen, she became concerned. And according to uh, Jennifer Kagan, uh, police uh, were notified around 7.30 by Robin's girlfriend, saying my boyfriend and his four-year-old had not returned. And then that's when uh, Jennifer Kagan got a call from him saying her daughter's missing. Now, according to Jennifer Kagan, who's now remarried, and her um, and her new husband, uh, they have a, a young baby themselves at home, an eight-month-old, their first initial reaction was, this is not a missing person's case, which is just heartbreaking. Uh, they tell Global News they were concerned uh, about uh, Robin having uh, unsupervised access to this little girl, uh, to his own daughter, and that they were in family court, and they were trying to get access, um, and they were fighting for access, and their concerns were that um, he was not stable. And uh, uh, we have these court documents that were provided to us by the mother, and uh, it's clear that, you know, the divorce was long and ugly, and and now the custody proceedings were also very difficult. And um, they were trying, as I said, this was their fear, that uh, he shouldn't be left alone uh, because uh, he feared that... um, um, Sorry, the mother feared that Robin Brown was not stable. And uh, he had apparently said to the mother at one point, um, I'm never going to let you be happy. Uh, it, was, it, it appears that this is a classic case of a man who uh, was, his wife divorced him, and he was very unhappy uh, that she was moving on. I spoke to my colleague, Miranda Anthesel, who did this very difficult interview this morning. Uh, and, you know, the mother was eerily calm, but she's a, a palliative care doctor. She deals with uh, death in her job, and I think that she was drawing on that strength, and she wants her daughter to be remembered. Uh, as a mother of a four-year-old myself, this is really a hard story to cover because uh, they're so so precious and uh, trusting. And reading these family court documents, it appears that there was a real back and forth here where the father, when he was alone with the little girl, he wouldn't let um, her, you know, he, he, she wanted to look at photos of the mother. And in the family court documents, it said that he said those, that, that book of photos, um, he, it, it was gone, the dog had eaten it. And so the mother was concerned about her daughter being prevented from calling when she was with the father. And uh, so police, of course, are now looking at uh, everything. Of course, they're going to take into account what what mother is uh, alleging, and um, you know this is just the thought. The police did say at the news conference today it, it, the, that the father and Kira were found at the bottom of the escarpment. Uh, they had signs of trauma consistent with a fall, but as we know, until a postmortem is done, uh, there may be more will come out. And I think police are relying heavily on the on the autopsies. Uh, to find out how they died, what the cause of death was. They're also looking for witnesses. They want to talk to anyone who might have seen them hiking yesterday. Uh, my initial um, reaction when I woke up and heard this news this morning that a four-year-old little girl and her father were dead after going hiking was, who's taking their four-year-old hiking? On the escarpment, and, no, you know, nonetheless. This is, I mean, I mean this is not just a, a romp through through the woods. This is... I mean, this is rugged terrain. And I just want to play this for you, Catherine, because you you mentioned uh, the police talking about where the bodies were found. Here is, again, Halton Regional Police Spokesperson Constable Ryan Anderson. The victims were located at the base of the escarpment. There were significant trauma uh, on on the victims that could be consistent with a fall. 
Uh, speaking with Catherine McDonald, who is the Global News crime reporter, and ju- just in way of background, I, I was uh, the crime reporter at one time, some time ago, uh, for Global. And Catherine, both you and I have a lot of experience with sort of reading between the lines about what police aren't saying or what they're sort of hinting or hedging at. What did you take away from that news conference? Well, you know, they don't want they want they don't want to jump to conclusions. Obviously, there are a lot of signs here that um, you know that the mother was concerned about her daughter being alone with the father. She wanted supervised access only, uh, and that was her concern. So, police have to wait until they get uh, postmortems to find out what the cause of death was for the father and for the daughter. Uh, you know, it doesn't look good here, and. Of course, you know, this this story is reminiscent of other stories we've done. The story of Ria Rajkumar, who just, it was a year ago that she was the subject of an Amber Alert, and it turned out she'd been murdered, and her father was the suspect, and they found him, and he then later died of a gunshot wound. I mean, this, again, and that was a case of a, a you know, his wife, they weren't really, they were no longer together, he and the mother of this child, and it appears that this was a case of, if, if I can't have her, then neither can you. And, um, you know, it breaks my heart to think that these children, these a four-year-old, could be used as a pawn in a, in a custody battle. And the, this poor mother and this stepfather, I, I, you know, I, I just can't even imagine how terrifying it must have been knowing that they were concerned to, that on Friday when they handed over this little girl to the father, uh, you know, is this, a, is, a, is this a case of a system failing a family? And I think that's probably what's going to come out here in the days and weeks to come. Catherine McDonald, it is an absolutely tragic story, and as you point out, we just don't know at this point. Police just don't know, and that's why you're sort of hearing what you're hearing from Halton Regional Police. Catherine, we'll have more on this story tonight on Global News at 5.30. Catherine, always great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. My other job is to be news anchor on Global News. That's something I do Monday to Friday, 5.30 to 6.30. I also host a political affairs show on the weekend called Focus Ontario. And I want to tell you about something that happened recently as I was getting ready to do a live broadcast from our Don Mills studio. At first, the visuals coming in from the Global News helicopter looked just like another traffic snarl in Toronto. But as the camera zoomed in past the flashing police lights and the diverted traffic, it revealed a smaller, utterly horrifying detail. A pair of men's shoes. One lay on its side, the other about a meter away, square in the middle of the right-hand lane. Those shoes should not be there. The evening newscast was just minutes from beginning, and from the anchor desk I watched as the camera operator adjusted the shot. We would be live soon, and it would be my job to help explain what was happening. Toronto Police had just updated the situation. A pedestrian struck near the Lawrence Avenue East and Donway intersection had been pronounced dead at the scene. Once live on the air, I told the audience what we knew. Police had responded around 4.30 p.m. The victim, a male in his 60s, the driver had remained at the scene. But nothing I said spoke as loudly as those shoes. Somewhere, someone was waiting for them to come home. Instead, police would be visiting with terrible news. More than 40 pedestrians were killed on the streets of Toronto in 2019, and the death toll has continued in 2020. 
Toronto City Hall has pledged to make streets safer for vulnerable road users with the Project Zero initiative launched in 2016. The idea is to use a mix of red light cameras, lower speed limits, and increased enforcement to change habits and increase safety. Results so far have left a lot to be desired. In recent news that some of those new radar cameras had been stolen or vandalized seems to just simply add another delay. Speaking here on this program about the cameras, Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford admitted it might have been naive for Council to consider someone might not, might rather steal those 365 kilogram units. Those cameras are not bolted down, so they can be redeployed as needed. But for Bradford, the bigger issue is education. We have a long way to go with our conversations with residents and communities about why we're moving forward with this program, said Bradford. While City Council struggles to explain what it's doing, Toronto residents seem to be struggling to understand why it isn't doing more. A poll conducted for the David Suzuki Foundation found close to 70% of Torontonians believe the city is not doing enough to make roads safer. 90% said they were concerned about road safety. If you count yourself among those concerned, it's time to ask yourself some questions. Are you willing to accept photo radar or reduce speed limits? Will you resist the temptation to speed when running late or to check your phone when someone texts? As pedestrians, are we willing to turn off our earphones to wear something visible when out walking on a dark winter night. We all need to take more care, to slow down, to be more aware of our surroundings. After all, road safety isn't just the responsibility of planners and politicians. It begins and it ends with you and me. Perhaps that is the message of those shoes. And today there is a new study, I take this from the Globe and Mail. You may remember that the Toronto and East York councillors reduced speed limits from 40 to 30 kilometres on hundreds of kilometres of local roads in their wards back in 2015. Well, researchers have now combed through police reports and found that 28% fewer pedestrians were hit by motorists on those roads where the speed limit was reduced. The number of people on foot Killed or seriously injured on the roads plunged 67%. And the drops coincide with a sharp reduction in motorist ticketing by police who cut their dedicated traffic unit in 2013. So the evidence shows that lower speed limits save lives. Are you willing to accept that? If we drop the speed limit in your neighborhood, where you walk, you'll say, this is a great idea. If we drop the speed limit in a neighborhood where you commute, will your perspective be different? The responsibility does not lie exclusively with planners, with police. It lies with you and me. In other news, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a visit to Kuwait today to meet with Canadian troops who moved there about a month ago from Iraq. Here is Justin Trudeau speaking this morning. It is because we have been 
as a country essential in the efforts to defeat Daesh. Essential in the efforts to rebuilding and providing a level of stability for Iraq uh, that will allow us to move forward and not just have a more stable and prosperous region, but indeed uh, reduce the impacts of terrorism around the world. That is Justin Trudeau speaking this morning in Kuwait. As you know, Justin Trudeau has been traveling trying to drum up support for Canada's bid for a seat on the United Nations Security Council, which, when I first heard that and I heard about the the tour that Mr. Trudeau is underway, undertaking and some of the commitments, the financial commitments that we have made, the question is, why do we want this? Okay. Eminem, you're not even nominated, Eminem. Well, this is not even part of the show. Why is Eminem here? Hey, hey, Mathers, Slim Shady, pull up your pants and sit down. Back to my point. This is from John Iveson writing in the National Post when we talk about why is it that Canada is currently bidding for a Security Council seat. Quote, this bid for the Security Council seat was not in the Liberal Party's 2015 election platform or in the mandate letter of Trudeau's first Foreign Affairs Minister, Stéphane Dion, but it was decided for domestic political reasons that nothing would shout out that Canada was back on the world stage like a seat at the UN's top table. So perhaps that's why we're pursuing this. David Aiken is traveling with the Prime Minister and is in Kuwait this morning and joins me on the line. Hi, David. Hey, Alan. How's it going? Great. Thank you very much. What are the odds that Canada actually scores one of these seats? There's three countries, us one of them, two seats. It's like a musical chairs. Yeah, so we're up against Norway and Ireland uh, in this particular dogfight, and all three uh, countries, you know, they want this seat. They, they think it'll be a valuable seat. Um, I, I've just we just landed in Kuwait about uh, five or six hours ago after spending the weekend in the capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, and we were in Ethiopia on this particular weekend because it was an occasion for the twice a year meeting of the African Union. So, fifty four uh, uh, African nations, fifty four heads of government, uh, all sort of in one place. A great chance for Trudeau, basically to try and meet as many as he can and pitch for votes. Um, going into the meeting, there was people saying, you know, Canada, you don't give enough official foreign aid to Africa. You know, Norway, relatively speaking, gives about five times as much. Uh, where have you been for the first four years in office? He has realized he's done a whole lot of uh, reaching out to Africa. But here he was, and I can tell you, actually, the, the, the diplomats, the officials in the room that, that, that uh, Trudeau was meeting these officials, they actually feel more upbeat at the end of the weekend that their chances have improved a bit about getting some votes from Africa and getting the seat on the Security Council. But one of the things, you know, if you're in Canada and you think about Africa, it's a big, diverse continent, of course, uh, but it's, we often think about it in terms only about humanitarian aid or peacekeeping. And African leaders don't want to talk that way anymore about their own continent and their own countries. They want to talk about investment. They want to talk about being partners in cultural relations, in sports, in education. And that is the approach Trudeau took, and it seems to have paid off. He also had a secret weapon. You may notice, uh, Alan, Masai Jury from the Raptors was uh, right behind him every step of the way, opening doors. He's got great contacts 
all throughout Africa. He's, he's active with his foundation, the uh, Giants of Africa Foundation. Um, you know, I get to do politics for a living, but I am a sports fan. I am a Raptors fan, so I was a bit of a fanboy, you know, trying to talk about trades and things like that. But it was great to see uh, him on this particular uh, uh, trip uh, back in up uh, Canada. Yeah, obviously a, a smart uh, strategy for the uh, Trudeau government to bring Messiah along with. But try, if you can, uh, and we, we don't have a ton of time, but w- explain to the audience why it is that this is something that we are chasing, this Security Council seat. Well, well, here's a good one. Right now, we got a problem with China, don't we? We got two two guys over there locked up by the Chinese, and we've been trying to talk to the Chinese and deal with them. When you're sitting on the Security Council, you're going to rotate and be the chair of it. Well, the, the Chinese are on the Security Council, of course, and this is a basically a chance. Day in, day out, you can be John of the Chinese and trying to sort something out. Same thing with all the other players in the room. That you know. The Russians, day in, day out, you can be talking to the Russians about whatever issues are going on. So it's a great way for Canada to sort of, again, be at the biggest table, the the most exclusive club in the world, and really work on issues that are important to Canada. Uh, It helps in terms of uh, all all sorts of things, from security to trade, uh, you name it. Just the ability to be one-on-one with some of the most senior representatives from these other governments. That's that's how it's paid off every other time we've been on the Security Council, you know, for about five or six times since uh, 1940. David Aiken, great perspective. David Aiken is traveling with the Prime Minister and landed in Kuwait just a couple of hours ago. Always great having you on the program, David. Thank you so much. Cheers. Welcome back to the program. Did Monday just come crashing on you just like a wave? Just, oh my God, we're back again. That two-day weekend, it's postage size. It's just, it's it's a stamp. It's a small little window where you can possibly enjoy yourself, and then you're right back at it. And you think to yourself, you know, of course, next weekend, your next Monday week today is family day. You think, why can't every week be like next week? Why can't we just all have four-day work weeks? It, it just seems like all I do is work. I could spend a little bit more time with my family, have a little bit more balance. Is that even realistic? Well, the drumbeat for a four-day work week is getting louder. Microsoft Japan tried it, says productivity rose by 40%, and electricity costs fell by 23%. Finland's new prime minister says her country might want to experiment with a four-day work week. Okay, let's get the goods. This, our next guest, is Kane Wilmot, who is CEO and co-founder of IQ Offices. And Kane was on the morning show on Global This Morning. Now, they recently did a survey. To create more productivity at work, would it actually work to get your productivity levels up to only have a four-day work week. How would that work? We run a co-working space. We're one of the largest co-working operators in Canada, Canadian-based. And we were looking at, outside of our four walls, what are Canadians looking at? Because we survey our members all the time in terms of productivity. So we did a survey, and in the survey we found a couple of interesting things. First of all, 57% of Canadians found that they were distracted at work. The next thing was... No surprise. Yeah, no surprise. There's plenty of distractions happening. And then in addition to that, 73% said if they didn't have the distraction at work, that they would get two extra hours of productive work every single day. Okay, because we're all uh, distracted because we work so much. Because when else am I going to online shop? Like, seriously. When else am I going to shop 
for a new TV or whatever it is, because I'm going to do that online. I'm going to do that at work because I'm always at work. You were listening there to Kane Wilmont, who's CEO and co-founder of IQ Offices, speaking with our Anthony Robart on the morning show here on Global Television. So then Anthony asks him, when he talk about distractions, what are the main distractions at work? So there's three top things. Number one, loud talkers. Uh-huh. <laughs> So I'm one of those, and I understand okay. that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Number one, loud talkers. Number two was that open concept work style where you had rec areas and there was noisy ping pong tables oh, and shuffleboards, those sorts of things. We have that here. And then number three was the nomad work style, which means that you go into your workspace and you don't have an assigned desk. Yeah, there's, I got all of that because I've got a couple of different offices. I'm here at Chorus Key where you're listening to me from me right now. And then I go up to Don Mills to our other studio. And I have desks in both spots, but, you know, it's always a pain. And then you, you got that open concept and there's always the loud talker. You know who it is in your office. I'm always the guy with the headphones in. Super antisocial. Because that's I just it's that's the only way you can do it. But let's get back to this whole four day work week thing. Are we really ready for this? Let's get back to Kane Wilmot. I absolutely think we're ready for this. I mean, our survey indicates that we are ready for this, but we just have to make those investments in productivity. So I think if we make the investments in productivity, we can get those extra two hours a day, and certainly we can move towards a four-day work week. This and prove to the happen. employer that, yes, this actually makes a difference, right? Absolutely. That's the bottom line. Yeah, interesting stat as well that we got from our survey was that people would take less money to be in inspire, inspiring spaces. We call them Instagrammable spaces. That's not going to happen. I'm not taking, you'd keep your Instagrammable space. I'll take the cash. I want the money. This is the thing. This is the thing with these kind of surveys. They all sound great. Four days. Sure. Sign me up. Oh, you mean I, I still have to be online constantly seven days a week like I am already? You're just going to pay me less? That's the way it's going to be? Because I don't know about you folks, but I am like I never turn the thing off. Sheba is with us. Sheba's our producer. Uh, and you had a kind of a personal day. You, you, you got some time away from work uh, this I, weekend. I did. Yeah. Did you turn but, off the, the Twitter machine? Yeah, did of you? course I didn't. I'm sure no, you know that. No, I saw time. you all weekend long. <laughs> tweet, tweet, you tweet. You guys, I went to New York with all of my, my Twitterverse, uh-huh. but uh, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm wondering, Alan, it seems like you need more of a work-life balance here. I don't need balance. <laughs> I have work and then I have my life. That seems to be the issue here because a four-day work week would be fantastic for it's everybody. It's not realistic. You know you're not. If you, at end of the day, I was like, well, you know what? We'll take a you know a fifth of your pay. You'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm not. You 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 would say no. I would Please absolutely say yes. I don't know. See, this is the th- another it's one of these worth things. It. This is one of these things where people in surveys and and you know sort of when it's it's not a real thing, they say yes. No, I would love this. And I'd then be when it becomes a reality, you're like, you know what? I need the cake. I need the cash. You'd be a much less grumpy person if you could hit the slopes more often, you know. Uh, Eminem! God! Talk about grumpy. All right, thank you, Sheba. Eminem, again, just crashing the party like he was at the Oscars. Like, what are you doing here, man? You're not even nominated.
Hey, welcome back to the program. You may have heard in the news this uh, announcement from the Ontario police, Ontario police, Ontario government, the Ontario government that says they're going to open up consultations. This is the news release. Ontario launches consultations on expanding cannabis business opportunities. And immediately what people figured is, whoa, hey, whoa, awesome. They're actually going to look at vape lounges and places where you can, you know, if you buy your weed, then you can actually go and smoke or vape or whatever you want to do at some kind of weed lounge, which a lot of people have been pushing for. This is like a great business model, they think. Well, there's all kinds of problems with that. First of all, how do you keep your staff safe? You know, like... You, you can't you can't have a smoking lounge and your staff walks around. That is a hazard right there. So that's a problem. But I want to give you some a, a little bit of context here. This is from Trina Fraser, who is a lawyer who specializes in the cannabis sector. Often a guest here on this program. So she tweets this morning after this comes out, this breaking news that there's this online consultation about cannabis consumption lounges, saying the most important part of the provincial consultation on cannabis consumption. Uh, is that the government is not, is not considering any changes to the Smoke-Free Ontario Act. That means any changes will have to respect the prohibition on public indoor smoking and vaping. This really limits the scope of the proposal, including consumption on outdoor restaurant, bar, patios. If you think about new consumption opportunities, I'm reading from Trina Fraser's um, Twitter feed this morning. This may create smoking and vaping, but at first blush, it appears that this whole thing is primarily an opportunity for edibles, which seems odd since onset duration of the effects from edibles makes it difficult to avoid over-serving. So basically what they're talking about here is when they talk about changing the laws, they're not talking about changing the smoking-slash-vaping laws, which are contained in a separate piece of legislation. What they're talking about is new expansion of business opportunities. Are you going to go to an edible lounge? Like, really? Well, I'm just going to wander in here. I'm going to, I'll take two gummies, and I'm going to sit over here for 45 minutes with my cookie. That is not going to happen. That is not a business model. We are so backwards somehow. You know, some, we're so progressive on some levels, the fact that it's legal, progressive. And then, well, it's like, oh, it's legal, but you can't smoke it anywhere. I'm sorry, you can't consume it in your apartment because you have a, a thing that says it's smoke-free in here. You can get tossed out. You know, it's, it's, you can't walk down the street. No. But wait a minute, it's legal. But it's not legal. Weird. All right, did you watch the Oscars last night? Did you enjoy a little bit of Oscars? Again. Marshall Mathers just shows up out of nowhere. I love this when he pops up out of nowhere on the Oscars last night to start playing this, 18 years after he won an Oscar for this song. And it's just the shots of the crowd were like, I don't even... First of all, A, it's a song I know, which is way better than the rest of the songs you're going to be playing tonight. And then B, why are you here, Eminem? Why are you even here? Well, I know why Chris Jenselowitz is here. He is a global online journalist and our movie guy here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. Welcome. Hello. Were you surprised to see Eminem? So I'm watching uh, this segment about how uh, music is impactful in movies, and I'm seeing a lot of 8 Mile, which of course is Eminem's movie. And I'm like, this is a, a lot of There's footage. a lot of, lot of, like, lot of Eminem It here. felt like he was going to walk out of the screen, and then he did. And then the stage rises, and there he is. And then everyone is shocked because it was 2002. Eight Mile was 2002. Right. So uh, total mystery. Uh, Mom's spaghetti. One weird thing, with the exception of Martin Scorsese, uh, it really livened up the audience, that's for sure. 
Like he was, he was sleeping. I think. <laughs> well, there was I, there was one actor actor, and I I didn't recognize her, but she would just had that kind of like stunned look on her face, like. What oh yeah, you? that was Adina Menzel from uh, Frozen. Okay, well, just let it go is what I would have to Forget say. About it. Thank you. All right, let's uh, begin with the big news, uh, and that is Parasite winning. Yep. And I I said going into the weekend that I didn't think Parasite would was going to win, but that that everyone I talked to who had seen the movie said this is my favorite movie, it's not going to win. Like, it was almost like, like this is a great movie, comma, it's not going to win. It just seemed like it maybe grabbed a little bit of momentum in the last couple of days. Yeah, and uh, I said the exact same thing, so you're correct. I said the exact same thing. I said 1917 is going to win. Should should be Parasite, but it's going to be 1917. Right. I always thought, oh, that was Oscar, voters wisdom, are, yeah. Oscar voters are stuck in their ways. Nothing really changes year after year. But hey, look at this. I mean, it changed. I definitely did not expect it to win. And you know when I really thought to myself, you know what, it is going to win, is when Bong Joon-ho, Joon-ho, pardon me, the uh, director of Parasite, said this after picking up the award for Best International Feature. Uh, thank you. I, I will drink until next morning. Thank you. Uh, that is the uh, director of Parasite who picked up an earlier award. And as soon as he said that, I thought to him myself, don't get into the bubbly too soon because I think you're going to be back on stage. Yeah. And, you know, once uh, the international picture, it won for international picture and then it started winning more. And I mean, it did only win in total four, which doesn't sound like a lot, but they were all big, important categories. So they took it, took it. And here's here's the thing. If you haven't seen the movie, I won't spoil it for you. First of all, para, I did, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be about at all. But it is, and I think this is going to really resonate over the course of this year, it was about class warfare. It was a, deeply about class. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that and a lot of references to this movie over the course of the year as we discuss things like social inequities. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think that it's like an incredibly metaphorical film. Uh, it is when you go in, you're expecting something and you what you get is not necessarily what you're expecting at all. But I think it shows a really good uh, move. A lot of people are saying it's not enough of a move for the Academy, but I think it's a pretty big move in terms of recognizing original movies. Let's move away from these typical movies that always win. You know, the war movies, which I really did think was going to win. Uh, you know, the really typical old white man kind of movies. Like, let's move away from that. Let's experiment. And the Oscars really, in order to survive, has to do that. Have to do that. Let's talk about Brad Pitt. Uh, here's a portion of his speech where he picked up uh, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. I'm a big gobsmacked. I'm not, I'm not one to look back, but this has made me do so. And I, I think of my folks taking me to the drive-in to see Butch and Sundance and loading up my car and moving out here and Gina and Ridley giving me my first shot to all the wonderful people I've met along the way to stand here now. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I think that's the truth. This is for my kids who color everything I do. I adore you. Thank you. That is Brad Pitt accepting an Oscar last night, and I really felt like the room and maybe the whole world was pulling for Brad Pitt last night. He's just so damn charming, you know? He's a good-looking fellow. Yeah. Even a mullet, he still looks good. I know. Easy on the eyes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get to Joaquin Phoenix, and I didn't stay up for this, but I did then read his entire transcript of his speech, which I thought 
was kind of incredible, and I want to play a bit of it for you here. Here is Joaquin Phoenix, who won for Best Actor for his portrayal of Joker. I've been selfish. I've been cruel at times, hard to work with, and ungrateful. But so many of you in this room have given me a second chance. And I think that's when we're at our best, when, when we support each other, not when we cancel each other out for past mistakes, but when we help each other to grow, when we educate each other, when we guide each other towards redemption. That is the best of humanity. That is Joaquin Phoenix last night accepting the best acting, best actor Oscar And I said in advance of the Oscars, it would likely be full of elitists making statements that they really had no idea about. I think this is the best of Hollywood here when they're introspective, when there's, when it's not about here's what the world should do, but here is what I should do, Chris. Yeah, I liked this. I I thought it was a little long and rambly. Uh, He tried to tackle a lot of topics in a very short period of time. Artificial insemination of cows. So really what he was talking about overall was, yeah, that was a little ridiculous, but he's talking about inequality overall. So humanity feels like it can take over anything, right? So whether that's animals, uh, you know, we don't have LGBTQ rights. We don't. We are racist and all these other horrible things. That's what he's really trying to say. Um, it felt genuine. Uh, he even um, I don't know if you saw this, Alan, because you didn't stay up. But he physically, uh, with his hands, was telling people was saying to people, "Please stop clapping for me." Yeah, he seemed um, like he was initially uncomfortable. With so the, it was weird. Yeah. I don't know uh, whether he was um, a bit upset because Joker kind of got smoked last night. Uh, it only won two categories despite being nominated the most of any film. So that. It's a bit of a question mark. Um, it could have been triggered by that. It could have been triggered by like the Oscars themselves, just how you know artificial they are. And Joaquin likes to portray himself as non, not really a part of that whole artificiality. But that clip that you just heard there, where mm-hmm. he, you know he talks about, I know I have been difficult. Yep. I mean, I, th- th- there's a level of self awareness there that I don't think you often see coming out of both that award show or Hollywood in general. Yeah, I like it. Uh, didn't he say previously at another award show about the Jets? Was that him talking about the private planes and how yep. celebrities shouldn't take them? You know, so there's been you know previous digs towards celebrities as well. I think you just but really this one to, to to bring it on yourself. Like this is yeah. my point here is what this is what drives me insane about these things is like why are you preaching to me, man? I don't need to be, I don't need, like, I'll go to church if I want to preach. And so this one resonated with you, then. This one I thought did, because it was this sense of, like, you know, and, and his whole point about that we develop as humans. We grow. Yes. And we change. And we're in a society now where we don't allow for that anymore. If you say something dumb today, Chris. Canceled. You are canceled. Yeah. And you are dumb for the rest of your life. Yeah. And no point are we ever going to come back to you and say, well, what did you learn from that? Because we're not going to give you the chance. And I think that's so sad. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Alan. You really got deep on me there. With the uh, God. God. Marshall. <laughs> Christian Selowitz. Just when Alan's getting serious, you know? <laughs> Chris Gansello, it's always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. All right, that is it for us. No one expects Eminem. It's like the Spanish Inquisition. It's just Eminem just pops up out of nowhere. It's mom's spaghetti already. Thank you so much for spending your time with us this hour.